Welcome to Stories of Faith. I'm Will Aubrey. I'm here with my friends Melissa Swingle and Braxton Bogard. Welcome, Melissa. Hello. Braxton. Very excited to be here today for this special episode. Today we're going to be talking about the atonement. And there are four different theories of the atonement. They are called the moral influence theory, the penal substitutionary atonement theory, the Christus Victor theory, and finally, the ransom theory. I believe our church subscribes to three of these. The one theory that pretty much no one subscribes to anymore is the ransom theory, and that theory posits that Jesus had to die to pay a ransom to Satan because we belonged to him due to the fact that we had sinned. I don't know of anyone who subscribes to that theory anymore. Would you right. agree with that, Brax? Uh, it's a it's a very a very rare um, rare theory. Um, it would have been subscribed to in the early days um, by uh, Origen. He was kind of the father of the ransom theory. And Origen, um, if you have done any study, is one of the most influential fathers in early church theology um, and even in modern Christian theology. Um, but it was also subscribed to by Augustine, who actually held to a mixed view of atonement. He held to the, the ransom theory as well as to the moral exemplar, and he tried to reconcile those two together, but it's not common anymore. Now, the theory that I like the best is the moral influence theory, and this theory indicates that Christ came to show us the way of love, which is the way to joy, to show us that the way that we have joy here on earth is by loving each other and being kind, and that he was willing to die in order to demonstrate that to us and to show his love for us. Mm -hmm. I really like that. The penal substitutionary atonement theory, that posits that Heavenly Father required that there be a death to pay for our sins yeah and and really that um that there had to be a satisfaction for justice that justice needed to be satisfied right and so as as christ paid the price of those sins for the sake of justice then god could still um extend mercy without robbing justice i appreciate you actually bringing up the word satisfaction um, because it it goes back to more of a um, penal substitutionary atonement is really a development of an earlier form of uh, what others call the um, substitutionary um, atonement, which um, mostly posits the idea that God had to substitute um, his wrath onto someone else, and Jesus became that substitution. And the reason that actually develops is because um, it, and penal substitutionary atonement does not really develop as a theory until the Protestant Reformation. Um, it's a very foreign concept that doesn't come up until around then. And um, the reason it gets applied to this more legal language, um, you have John Calvin who comes around, and John Calvin is actually trained in law. He's a lawyer. And uh, he sees this idea of, of substitution, um, and he believes that that's, that's how it should be. But as a lawyer, he's trying to um, make it 
he's trying to apply this almost systematic um, theology through his study of the Bible. That's why he writes his book, Institutes of the Christian Religion. And he'll try to apply this legal language um, to his understanding of theology. And that's where he'll add this legal language. Instead of substitution, it will be a penalty, penal, um, and these kind of things. That it's like this courtroom case that's going on. And finally, Christus Victor. This is the oldest of the different theories of the atonement. It's the one subscribed to by most of the early church fathers. And this theory posits that Christ triumphed over death and sin, and that that's the way in which he made the atonement. And one thing that we should really be clear on is the meaning of the word atonement. It means to reconcile. It does not necessarily mean what people have come to take it to mean, that being enduring punishment. It doesn't have to do with yeah. that. In fact, uh, when I was younger, my mom would always split it up for me and just say at one meant to put, to put together at one. And so it's it's the way in which we become reconciled to God. Right. The way that we become at one with God right. is through the atonement of Christ. Um, yeah. And, and that and with the Christus Victor, it really goes back to Adam and Eve and the fall of mankind. Um, one thing that's really important to understand is that we believe that men must be punished for their own sins and that we're not responsible for Adam's transgression, right? But that because of the transgression of Adam and Eve, all mankind became subject to the temptations of the devil and we gained a knowledge of good and evil. And because we are here, we are subject to, to, to those temptations and we are human we give into those temptations and that um is what christus victor too mm -hmm. is really all about is that overcoming of those things overcoming of sin and death yeah and so when we're talking about all these things i think um the conversation that we're invited into are these two guiding questions when we're trying to discern atonement or at one minute it's that how are we made at one with the father that's one of the first questions um and like you said will it's not strictly limited to the death of christ even though it's usually assumed to be that. And the other question I think is, what does Christ accomplish in his life or death? How does that change me? Um, how does it affect me? And I also think it's important as we talk about all these different things that um, there is no one doctrine um, of the atonement as found in the scripture. There are only theories based on what we see. Scripture can be very diverse. Um, Paul seems to be a very would lead you to think that penal substitutionary atonement might be accurate. Um, but Jesus in the Gospels doesn't really seem to point to a penal substitutionary idea. And really others and multiple writers of Scripture and even the early church fathers have these competing viewpoints. Um, and it's really rather an invitation into a conversation um, to wrestle with understanding um, the life and the death of Christ and what it means for me. That's why atonement is so important because it helps us discern that. You know, another thing that I think is important when you, you know, you talk about how the scriptures are varied. Um, I think, okay, I'm trying to organize my thoughts. Um, it's important to understand that the atonement itself is deep and varied, right? That um, uh, there was a quote that I heard, um, and I was, I was actually trying to find it, but I can't, I haven't found it yet. Um, 
and I can't remember what meeting I was in, but I know it was a member of the Quorum of the Twelve, and I'm really sorry that I'm not giving the exact uh, reference, but he said that the atonement is beyond our comprehension, but it should never be beyond our attention. And I love that. We're, we're never going to be able in this life to fully comprehend the atonement because our brains are finite and the atonement is infinite, right? It's infinite. It's an infinite atonement. And, and because our brains are finite, that's one of the reasons why we have these kinds of theories so that we can postulate um, methods of understanding to try and help us to understand what the atonement does for us and what our part is in the atonement. Um, but in the Book of Mormon, you know, it says that believe in God, believe that he is, believe that he created all things, believe that man cannot comprehend all the things that God can comprehend. And um, that doesn't mean we just say, okay, well, I don't get it. I give up. You know, we keep studying, we keep learning. But it does mean that there's a lot to it. And, and I think it's okay to accept, you know, multiple theories. And Absolutely. And you don't necessarily have to accept any particular theory of the atonement as long as you accept the atonement yeah that's that's the key and there's also the possibility that there's a synergy here where all of it's happening in at the same time i have difficulty when it comes to the penal substitutionary atonement with the the idea that that heavenly father requires someone to die his son in particular i have difficulty with that however you can look at that and look at the moral influence theory and there are ways to put it together you can say that we could have embraced christ when he came if we had if we had embraced the way of love if we had embraced his message then we could have had zion here on earth at that time we didn't and maybe when we chose to kill christ maybe heavenly father looked at it that way and said okay well if you insist on doing it this way then his death will pay for everyone's transgression hmm. yeah that's interesting um i i'm thinking right now too about um uh, in Alma, um, when as we're talking about the um, uh, penal substitution, um, it, it's where I'm in Alma 34, verse 15. It says, and this is in the Book of Mormon for those of you who are unfamiliar with it. it says, and thus he shall bring salvation. He talking about Christ to all those who shall believe on his name. This being the intent of this last sacrifice to bring about the bowels of mercy, which overpowereth justice and bringeth about means unto men that they may have faith unto repentance and thus mercy can satisfy the demands of justice and encircles them in the arms of safety while he that exercises no faith unto repentance is exposed to the whole law of the demands of justice therefore only unto him that has has faith unto repentance is brought about the great and eternal plan of redemption Therefore, may God grant unto you, my brethren, that ye may begin to exercise your faith unto repentance, that ye may, uh, that ye begin to call upon his holy name, that ye, that he would have mercy upon you. 
Yea, cry unto him for mercy, for he is mighty to save. Yea, humble yourselves and continue in prayer unto him. Um, so I feel like that kind of gives a glimmer, really, of that that theory of penal substitution. But I, I actually feel like, like you said, our church subscribes to three of these theories. I do feel like I, I can find traces of each of these theories within scripture itself. And I think it largely depends upon um, the prophet that's writing it at the time, because every person understands things in a different way. Or we see, for instance, we can see color. What, what blue looks like to me, excuse me, <laughs> what blue looks like to me may not look what the same as blue looks to you. But we, we both call it blue because we have understood the term blue to mean this thing, this color that we see, right? Um, and I think with the atonement, there can be multiple viewpoints and, and God teaches to us in our own language. And so if your language is that of, I mean, like you were talking about earlier with, uh, as a lawyer, you know, yeah. you would want to look at right. some very simple to understand structure. Systematized. Yes, very systematized. And so that's what this provides. Yeah. Um, the passage that you read from Alma reminds me of one particular passage and then a couple of others. But Hosea 6, 6, mm -hmm. for I desired mercy and not sacrifice, and the knowledge of God more than burnt offering. Psalms 51, 16 to 17, you do not delight in sacrifice or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offering. My sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit broken and contrite heart, you, God, will not despise. And that term, broken and contrite heart, you hear often in our church. Mm -hmm. Finally, Hebrews 10, 6, you did not want animal sacrifices or sin offerings or burnt offerings or other offerings for sin, nor were you pleased with them. See, but I look at that and I think it refers to the law of Moses and how the law of Moses was incomplete. But then when Christ came and fulfilled the law of Moses, he brought about the higher law, which was the law of Christ, which is the offering of a broken heart and a Absolutely. spirit. Yeah. Amen. Definitely. Yeah, and for sure. And re regarding that passage in Alma, I, I do think you can, you can use it to argue. And, and like with any of these theories, when, when theologians are constructing their theories, they're using passages of Scripture to bring them together, different passages. And, and trying to string things together. So whereas one person could string together one theory from this these two passages, another could string another theory. And I think you could see and argue penal substitutionary atonement from that passage in Alma. I also think you could argue a Christus Victor model. Mm -hmm. um, you definitely, or a more, I'm sorry, not Christus Victor, but moral influencer, but even Christus Victor. I, yeah, yeah, I was thinking but, of Christus Victor. Yeah, yeah sure. but faith and repentance, I, that Christ is somehow modeling this way to have faith and believe in him that I might repent and change. Mm -hmm. And and that's exactly what moral influence or moral exemplar is, is attempting to do. And Christus Victor showing that Christ becomes through this influence a victor over death. Um, and that's the, the gospel, you know, yeah, becoming a victor to establish Zion, the kingdom of God. And I think for me, I've um, in my own life, I have taken more of a Christus, Christus Victor kind of a view. Mm -hmm. um, the idea that um, the way I've always described it, though, is 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 more like, you know, I am I am weak, 
I, I have a lot of shortcomings. I have a lot of strengths. I mean, don't get me wrong. I think I'm a pretty great person. <laughs> we do too. <laughs> but but I, I also sometimes feel like I'm a terrible person, you know, when, when I'm low and I'm feeling, I'm feeling the weight of my own sins. And, and I always look at it as, um, uh, this is a really imperfect uh, analogy, but as, as a pianist, I, I've been playing the piano since I was, I don't know, eight years old or something. And, and I took lessons for a long time. I have played for thousands and thousands of hours in my life. And so I look at myself as an expert in the piano and I feel like because I have learned how to overcome the difficulties of early practicing and learning how to do things, I'm able to teach other people because I'm an expert in that and I can do that. Mm -hmm. And in that same kind of way, because Christ is the victor, because he overcame death, he overcame sin, um, he's able to reach his hand out to me and teach me the same thing and help me to become victorious as well. I guess in a way that's the moral influencer speaking, um, but it's it's a little bit of both for me, um, and I've always understood the atonement in that way. Ooh, that was exciting! <laughs> You're welcome for that little bit of music, listeners. Um, <laughs> but um, you know, yeah, I yeah, it's it's interesting how it can be looked at in so many ways, and how really these these theories could lace on top of each other. Keeping in mind that I never had heard of these various theories, or at least not specifically. I, I, I don't know. My brother's a chaplain. He's got a master's in religion. So I feel like maybe he's told me about these things and I kind of tuned him out. <laughs> <laughs> I love you, Mandy. Um, <laughs> um, but yeah, I, I think um, I, I really didn't have any kind of understanding of them until we talked about it a couple of weeks ago and said that that's what we were going to talk about during this episode. And I was like, well, I got to look up what these things are. <laughs> you know, I got to read on this. Well, one thing that always made an impression on me, one of the first passages from the Book of Mormon that just lit up my mind was the passage where we're told Adam fell that man might be, men are that they might have joy. And I was like, wow, everybody wants to know why we're here. That's why we're here. Yeah. And and then if you look at what Christ came and said to us, it's clear that he was telling us how to have joy. And mm. that's to love your neighbor. If we all loved each other, don't you think we would oh, all be yes. much happier? Yes, definitely. Oh yeah. And to tie that in with with atonement, I mean, with the, you've got the moral influencer that you're referencing. I think it, it makes the ransom theory just fall flat in its face. Absolutely. Because the ransom oh, theory yeah. goes back to this idea, right, that Adam and Eve basically sold us to the devil because yeah, of their sin. Yeah. That we, we just have to be given Sorry, up. I shouldn't say it's dumb. That's unkind but it is dumb. to whoever. <laughs> right. It is dumb, though. You know? Yeah, I guess. Right. <laughs> it, I, I don't know. It kind of reminds me of The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. I don't know how familiar you are with that that book by C.S. Lewis. But, um, you know, in the book, Edmund is, is, Edmund is a traitor to his family. And so in the deep laws of the land of Narnia, um, that means that he now belongs to the witch, the wicked witch that's there, um, the white witch. And, and so then um, Aslan comes and dies in his place. 
and basically buys Edmund from the witch. And that that's the theory that's kind of set forth. And um, it's, it's just what it reminds me of. And I've always thought it was kind of weird. I don't know. <laughs> we don't ever belong to Satan. No, absolutely we may, not. We may uh, fall prey to his temptations because he is wily and uh, intelligent and good at tricking us into to walking away from God. But we do not belong to him ever. One thing that I learned early on in this church that really meant a lot to me, having been Catholic, was I was at Sunday school and Alan Banks was the Sunday school teacher here at that time. He's since moved off to Idaho. <gasps> Idaho, that's Idaho. where I'm from. But anyway. I won't sing the song. We don't have time. <laughs> anyway, uh, he's teaching Sunday school and he says, we do not believe that we are born broken. And as a Catholic, I was taught that we were born broken. That as a result of original sin, we were born with an inclination to do evil. And if you think about the the ransom theory, that kind of dovetails a little oh, yeah. bit with yeah. the Catholic belief in original sin. But uh, to to understand that we were not born broken and that the gospel is written on our hearts, yeah, that it, it makes a huge difference. You know, whenever you're learning any new skill, whenever you're learning how to become a pianist or you want to be a great basketball player, you have to combine it um there you have to combine practice with some amount of talent and and a lot of execution over and over again of the same skills as you grow upon those skills and that is what the gospel is we learn line upon line precept upon precept so we're not born broken but we are born a little bit weak and the gospel strengthens us it's we came here because we chose to be here. We chose to come and gain experience. And we said, yeah, God, we want to be like you. We want to have thy glory and be able to, you know, increase forever and ever in the same way that thou doth increase. And so we came here so that we could learn and grow and learn how to overcome sin. And it's Christ who teaches us how to do that. Amen. Amen. It's interesting you made the analogy earlier about learning to play the piano. Uh, one of the, he used to be at least, I think, in the presidency of the Sunday school. Um, all right. Brad Wilcox. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I heard him give he's, a talk once. He's, and, he's an LDS author, just for those who are, anyway, right. go ahead. Anyway, I heard him give a talk once and he compared learning the piano to learning the gospel and he put it this way he says if your mother uh buys you piano lessons she pays for piano lessons for you she has the right to expect you to practice okay <laughs> and it's the same way here yeah. jesus has done his part he's paid his part uh for us to uh to be reconciled with the father he's paid for our reconciliation he has the right to expect us to practice the gospel yeah definitely 
You know, I love that too, because my mom was really smart when it came to me learning to play the piano. All of my older siblings had taken piano lessons at some point. And so when I started getting the age that I could start taking piano, my, my mom got my siblings to be playing around me all the time. And she's, you know, she, she would play and talk about how great it was to be able to play piano until the point that I was begging, please, mom, let me take the piano. Okay, well, if you're going to take piano lessons, then we're going to have to make a contract. And you've got to practice so much, you know what I mean? And we all chose to be here, you know? We said, okay, please, let me go to Earth. I want to do this. Yeah. And yeah, and now it's, okay, we got to keep up our end of the deal. I'm going to learn to be like God while I'm here, right? That's what we said we'd do. Um, we are his image bearers, Braxton that's right. says. That's absolutely right. Anything else? Uh, I mean... There's a lot that could be said, um, but I don't want to just bring it up out of nowhere. So I don't know. I, I guess I'll, I will give I will give my critique of penal substitutionary atonement, which is not my critique. It is another's critique that I found to be very helpful. Um, Steve Chalke um, and Alan Mann uh, wrote a book called The Lost Message of Jesus, in which they um, tried to talk about what Jesus was actually trying to say that they felt some had forgotten in the church, um, the church Catholic or the church universal, um, not, the Latter-day, not the church of Jesus Christ, the Latter-day Saints, but just in general. And they say this, um, the cross isn't a form of cosmic child abuse, a vengeful father punishing his son for an offense he has not even committed. If the cross is a personal act of violence perpetrated by God towards humankind, but born by his son, then it makes a mockery of Jesus' own teachings to love your enemies. The idea that God was an angry deity requiring a sacrifice to propitiate his wrath was surely more like an ancient pagan God than the Father of Jesus Christ. I think that no matter what we believe um, about the the atonement, uh, whatever theory we subscribe to, I think it should be in light of this idea that, that Christ has invited us to love our enemy, he has invited us to do that by modeling that very way himself. Um, and I think that can fit into any theory, but that's the way it must be yeah. at the starting point. You know, it's interesting because what I had read about penal substitution didn't it didn't cast it in that light of like God is an angry God who demands justice, but more the idea of well, justice demands this, and God has to be just because he's perfect and once we've sinned we have to have a way to make it back and either we can pay for the sins or someone who is perfect can pay for those sins so that we can come back to god we can be at one with him again and so that that in my mind that's what i had been looking at penal substitution but yeah if, if you're looking at it in that harsh way no way man god is god is love like we've talked about that a lot and we're told in the 13th chapter of corinthians love keeps no record of wrong oh yeah so absolutely and you know i i do want to i i i did speak of penal substitution very harshly and i i want to kind of defend at least where i see um the authors of penal substitutionary substitutionary atonement theory come where they're coming from um you know with luther and um calvin the problem is is that irenaeus um it's not really a problem but 
Irenaeus proposes this um, this theory of atonement, uh, which which kind of says that that Christ um, dies that we might become like Him. So we, we're talking about this deification, right? Right. right. And um, so you have this um, theology of glory that's really coming about. And I want to I want to say that in in Luther's defense, I think what he's seeing is. He's he's fearing that we might become too focused because of our uh, our own hubris and our own selfish, prideful nature that we might become so obsessed with becoming like God or being deified that we would forget the importance and the model which allows us to become deified. Yeah. Deification is a reality, but um, if we are too concerned about it and that's our goal then um, we've lost something. Yeah, if we start forgetting about other people around us right. because I can't help you, I've got to become like God. You know? Right, exactly. <laughs> you know, that's like going back to the Good Samaritan and yeah. the priest who walks by, I'm right. too holy to help you. <laughs> you know, I'm too right. holy to serve. Yeah, that's, oh, yeah. God is not prideful. Right. So that doesn't work. Absolutely. Yeah. Yes, and in Christ we discover a God who would rather die than kill its end. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I have to say something else too that I thought of when you talked about um, Corinthians and how, how love keeps no record of wrongs. And I thought about how God tells us um, that when we repent of our sins and that we're forgiven, he says, I, I the Lord, remember them no more. Yeah. Meaning I, I remember your sins no more. And, and inter it's interesting to me that, I mean, we do have to repent for that to be true. But that means that to repent, we're really turning our lives around to become more like Christ, to become more like God, who is love. And that's when we're able to, we're, we have the ability to keep no record of wrongs when we become more like him. And I would add this, and this is the gospel according to will. <laughs> I don't, I'm not saying anybody teaches this, but, uh, I, you know, in my opinion, the heavenly report card mm -hmm. narrative trivializes Christianity. Yeah. There is no heavenly report card. We are to be transformed into the image of Christ. And when we sin, yes, there are natural consequences to that. And uh, when we ask God to forgive us, that's definitely a good and holy thing to do. What, what, that should really mean to us is that we're asking him to heal us yeah. so that we don't do it again Amen. and we're asking mm -hmm. him to help us repair the damage of what we've done That's yeah right. absolutely yeah. you know i was thinking too that it in the scriptures it says that when we stand before god we will stand with a bright recollection of all of our guilt that it will be us that we will be the ones remembering everything that we've done wrong. Not that God's going to stand there condemning us, right? But that we will stand there and go, oh, man, <laughs> oh, yeah. I'm so sorry. <laughs> and and that that's how that it's through Christ that we're able, like you said, to get that healing to become better so that we don't have to stand there with, a, with the recollection of those sins because we will have forgotten them as well. They will no longer be a part of who we are. Mm -hmm. And, and I think the beauty of that, and, and I, I've heard you say this statement, Will, before, is that if we're going to, the beauty is um, this reality. God, uh, Jesus did not die 
um, to change God's mind about you. Yeah. Jesus died to change your mind about God. Yeah. I love that. He would go to yes. the uttermost. Yes. He would yes. offer up everything. It was, you know, when Adam and Eve sinned in the garden right. and they opened the way for sin to enter in the world. And by the way, for humans to enter in the world, which is a whole other conversation for another episode. But um, God had, he said, okay, well, you sinned or you've transgressed and you can't be in my presence now. So I'm going to provide a savior for you because I want you back. Right. There, there is God doeth nothing for the world. save it be for the benefit of the world because he loveth the world, even that he gave his own son. Right. Brad Wilcox gives a talk called his grace is sufficient in which he says, we think we're going to have to beg to get into heaven. The reality is, when you get to the pearly gates, the only one that will be begging will be God begging you to stay. Yes, I love it. That brings to a close this edition of Stories of Faith.